Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to ask you to take your copy of the Scripture and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to talk about Jehoshaphat this morning, the fourth king of Judah, reigning during the 9th century B.C. This is one of the greatest chapters on prayer and the results of prayer and praise that you will ever read in all the Scripture. <clears throat> so I want to ask you to kind of walk with me all the way through this chapter as we look at it this morning and see what do you pray when you don't know what to do? What do you pray when you don't know what to do? Are there ever any times in your life when you don't know what to do? Usually what we do in those times is we do something and then we regret it. But what this passage is going to teach us is that we are to pray something. There are some acknowledgments that we are to make. There are some things that we are to do before we do anything else. What do you pray when you don't know what to do? Notice in verse 1, And it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. Now, we don't know why these three nations are going to come against the king and against Judah, but we know they're coming. And three times in this passage, they are referred to as a great multitude. Now, what happens when Jehoshaphat gets the news that this great multitude is coming? Verse 3. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. Now notice three times in these two verses, verse 3 and 4, there will be this phrase, seek the Lord. He turned to seek the Lord, proclaiming a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. God uses a lot of things in our lives to get him to seek him. He can use something going wrong in our health. He can use circumstances, obstacles, pressure, a loss of a job. He can use a lot of things in our lives to get us to seek him. God used fear, the fear of the enemy, an overpowering great multitude. God used the fear of that enemy to get Jehoshaphat's attention. And he began to seek the Lord. And when he sought the Lord, then the people sought the Lord. <clears throat> if you read the Old Testament, you will find that God always calls the leader, the king, into accountability for his people. The leader sets the pace. And then the level of leadership commitment to the things of God determines what happens with the nation. You study the Old Testament and you'll find that as the kings went, so went the nation. Never do you find that the nation was seeking God when the king was evil. It will say over and over again, especially in Chronicles, that when he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not do as his father David had done, you will find that the nation got involved in idolatry and in evil. But if it says he did right in the sight of the Lord and did good in the sight of his father David, then it, you will notice that there is great reform and great revival. God works through individuals. But when personal repentance and seeking takes place, it must lead to corporate repentance and then national repentance. It has to begin with a person. 
but it has an overflow into a corporate seeking and a national seeking of God. You will find in these pages one of the greatest testimonies of the power of prayer and of the understanding of prayer that you'll ever find anywhere in Scripture. Preaching makes men seek God. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. It is by the foolishness of preaching that men are saved. But prayer is that thing that makes God gracious toward men. Now I want you to look, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, because he talks about the fact that he turned to God and prayed in verse 5. There are three characteristics, three facts that you need to understand about prayer. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the prompter. The Holy Spirit is the prompter. The prompter of prayer is the Holy Spirit. You and I don't decide to pray. Even the desire to pray comes from the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit living within us plants in us a desire to pray. It says he turned his attention to seek the Lord. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit orchestrated circumstances to make him want to seek the Lord. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, The effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Literally, prayer worked in by the Holy Spirit becomes effective. The Holy Spirit is the prompter. Secondly, the purpose of prayer is the glory of God. He says he turned his attention to seek the Lord. The purpose of prayer is not to get an answer. The purpose of prayer is not for me to get my needs met. The purpose of prayer is the glory of God. The purpose of prayer is to seek the Lord. If we ask according to His will, He will do it, 1 John says. When we pray in Jesus' name, it is not some little phrase that we tack on to the end of our prayer and hope that covers all our bases. When we pray in Jesus' name, it is saying that we are praying in the character and in the name and consistent with the nature of Jesus Christ. That you and I are praying like we believe Jesus would pray if he were here and if he were in that situation. It is praying with the character of Christ in mind. Now the prerequisite for prayer is faith. James says we are to ask without wavering. You're going to find that that Jehoshaphat is going to remind God of his promises. There are five acknowledgments in this prayer, five things that he honors the Lord with, that he reminds the Lord of, things that we need to remember when we approach God in prayer. Number one, God rules over all nations. Look at, if you would, beginning in verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. God had made a covenant relationship with his people. Daniel repeats this when he says that God sets nations in the hands of the lowliest of men. God rules over all mankind, Daniel 4.27 says. You see, you and I need to understand when we pray that we are talking to a sovereign God. He is not out of control. He has not grown 
weak with age. He is not one who stands helpless in the affairs of men and in the affairs of nations. God rules and reigns in this universe, and he is bringing it to his ultimate end, the second coming of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth, the judgment seat of Christ, and the great white throne of judgment are all in the economy and plan of God. God is not surprised by anything. God is not caught off guard. There's nothing he doesn't know, and there's no situation in this world that he's not already aware of. He is sovereign God. Jehoshaphat comes and says, Lord, you have power and might in your hands, and no one can stand against thee. My friends, listen, if you learn to pray by knowing that you are praying to the God against whom no man, no enemy, nothing that you face can stand against him, it'll affect the way you pray. If your God is weak and feeble and is unable to do impossible things, then you will pray to him like he is weak and feeble and unable to do impossible things. But if your God is the God of this book and no one can stand before him, no one can stand against him, then you will pray in light of the sovereignty and the awesome, omniscient, omnipresent power of God in your life. You'll pray that way. God rules over all nations. Secondly, God delights in answering prayer and honoring his word. Look at verse 7. Now, I find this really funny. The Bible has a lot hidden in it. Verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid. In verse 7, Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? He's gone from hysterical to historical. He's hysterical. He's afraid. He turns to seek the Lord. Now he gets historical. Lord, now didn't you do all this stuff? Why aren't you going to do this stuff for us? He's claiming the promises of God. What's he claiming? He's claiming the promise, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 13 and 15, I will give you a land. Lord, you said you'd give us a land. If these three nations take us over, then we're not going to have a land. There won't be any place for us to dwell. You promised Abraham, your friend forever, that his descendants would live in this land. Now that is being threatened. What are you going to do, God, in light of the promise that you made to Abraham? Jehoshaphat goes back all the way, hundreds of years in history, and says, God, you promised it back there. What are you going to do about it today? You see, the promises of God are not given to you and to me so that we don't pray. They are given to us so we know how to pray, so we know what to pray for. God, here's your word. Here's what you've said. Now notice what he says in verse 8. You promised the land, and they lived in it, and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come up upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. Now, in verses 8 and 9, he's basically quoting the prayer of Solomon that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. Here's what he's doing. He's asking God to answer prayer by honoring his word. He's saying, God, you promised us a land that's being threatened. God, there are three nations coming against us. If they take over, 
the prayers aren't going to be offered in this temple anymore where you said you would listen to the prayers of your people. We have come. We have assembled. I've proclaimed a fast. We are in your presence. We are at your temple. We are here in Jerusalem, your city, and we are asking you to honor the word and honor the prayer. Now turn back if you would. Hold your place in chapter 20. Turn back to chapter 7 because there's the prayer of Solomon. Now this prayer we're going to pick up in verse 15. But if you remember, the prayer is, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land and forgive their sins. Now in verse 15 he says, Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place, the temple that had just been dedicated. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Huh. What Jehoshaphat's done is he's cornered God. He's got God and he says, Now God, here's what you said you'd do in your word. These are the promises that you've made. We think, boy, that's, you got to be brazen to corner God. No, well, let's just look at it this way. My kids corner me sometimes. You know, they have my name. It's been given to them perpetually. They're stuck with it until they get married and get rid of the last name. Then they'll marry somebody with another weird last name. I mean, they're just kind of stuck with it. But every now and then I'll say, hey, when I get home from work, when I do this, you know, we'll, we'll go play this or we'll go get ice cream or we'll go do something else and then I have a busy day and I'm tired and I'm worn out and I get to the end of the day but they haven't forgotten. Have you ever noticed that if you make a promise to your kids they never forget? They never forget. They forget to make up their bed. They forget to clean up their room. They forget to pick up their plates and put them in the, in the uh, sink. They forget to do everything they're supposed to do but you make a promise to them and they never forget it. And they corner me. <laughs> That's an old me. <laughs> they corner me. I said, Daddy, you promised. So sometimes I have to readjust because I don't want to break a promise. You know what? Jesus said, if you being evil give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? You know what God's waiting on? God's waiting on His people to take Him at His word. Trust me, try me, prove me, says the Lord. God's just waiting on us to take Him at His word. Say, so God, this is what you said in your word. This is what you said you would do. And God loves to be reminded of His promises. Why? Because they're His and He wrote them and He sustained them and kept them so that you and I today could read them and understand them and obey them and say, God, here's your promises. Here's your word. Would you live up to your word? That's all you're asking Him to do. Just live up to His word. And if He does it, it's just more proof in your life that He's God. And by the way, he won't fail to live up to his word. Never has, won't start with you. Number three, God judges those who oppose him. Verse 12, O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are, and underline this word, powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes 
are on thee. By the way, do you know what Jehoshaphat's name means? His name means Yahweh will judge. Jehovah will judge. Lord, wilt thou not judge them? It's a reminder to us, folks, that God always gets the last word. Man never gets the last word. Peter said in Acts, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was man's last word on Jesus Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and King. God always gets the last word. The cross wasn't the last word. The resurrection was the last word. God always gets the last word. God judges those who oppose him. Lord, will you not judge them? We are powerless. Lord, this great multitude comes against us and we are absolutely powerless. Will you judge them? Will you take care of them? We don't know what to do. We're just going to look to you for the answer. That's what he's saying. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. You know why the church is weak today? Because we think we know what's best for us. We think we've got an answer. We think we've got some power. And you see, it is opposing God to try to serve Him in your flesh as much as it is to stand against God outside the church. And one of the reasons the church lacks the dynamic that the early church had is because we think we have something to offer God. Our expertise, our abilities, our intellect, our resources, our thoughts, our wisdom, we think we've got all of this stuff that we can offer God, and God doesn't want any of it. God wants us to understand and acknowledge the fact that apart from Him, we can't do anything. We are powerless. Lord, I'm absolutely powerless. You see, I get in trouble if I think I've got the power to preach a sermon. Now, I've got the power to make a talk, but I don't have the power to impart life. That's the Holy Spirit. God has to do that. We are powerless if we think we can manipulate and orchestrate situations and circumstances to make things happen that will help God out. And here's one of the ways we've done it. We thought in the mid-70s that if we could elect a Christian in the White House, that'd solve all our problems. Solved them, didn't it? Then we thought if we just get somebody to be patriotic, God bless America, honor the flag, Restore faith in the country. That'd bring revival to America. We hadn't had it, have we? See, here's what happened to us, folks. The devil took us on a detour. He got us convinced that politics was better than prayer. He got us convinced that sitting in front of abortion clinics and being arrested for civil disobedience, which God's Word specifically says we are supposed to obey those who are in authority, that's breaking the law, that's no testimony for Christ. We thought that to sit down in front of that and make a point was a way to reach the abortionist, and we'd rather sit there all day than go pray one hour. We thought it was forming committees that would make things happen. We thought it was electing the right people that will make things happen. The system is so corrupt, friends, you can elect a whole Congress full of Christians and there's so many corrupt people around them, they'd never do any good. Listen, when is the church going to realize that this world doesn't care what the church thinks, but we can get a hold of one who can get a hold of the world? God judges those who oppose them. All we've got to do as a church is get on our knees and say, God, 
There they are. Sick them. Here's their names. This is where they serve. You take care of them because I can't do it. I could call the president. I could call every congressman. I could call every senator. I could call everybody on the Supreme Court, and they'd say to me this, I'm sorry he's unavailable right now. And he's going to continue to be unavailable. And if I did get through to him, they'd say, some stupid preacher down in South Georgia called me today, and I can't believe he had the gall to call me and tell me what he thought about something. But you know what? I can take every one of them before God, and then God can speak to them in places that I don't know about. You see, God judges. I don't have to judge. God judges. I may have an opinion, but God's the one who judges. God judges those who come against the church. God judges those who come against the name of Jesus Christ. God judges those who oppose that which is right and moral and decent. And we are powerless to change it except, except that we keep our eyes on Him. That's where you need to keep your eyes, folks. If you put your eyes on circumstances, you're going to become depressed. Dr. Havner said it's hard to be optimistic with a misty optic. You're going to get absolutely depressed if you look at this world. But God judges. Leave it in His hands. Let Him take care of it. As long as we think we have the resources, we won't make it. And here's how we play that game. We get a bartering spirit, and we practice religious humanism, and we say, Lord, I'll help you do something if you'll help me. No, we are powerless. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Number four, God delivers us from distress and danger. Now, if you look at verse 15, the last part of verse 15, you'll see it is the result of the prayer prayed in verse 12. Lord, we're powerless. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on thee. Verse 15, the last part. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Verse 17. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourself. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. How do you get rid of distress? How do you get rid of all your phobias, your fears? Well, he says in this passage... He says two times, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? You just stand because God's going to fight the battle for you. God's going to take care of all this. By the way, 365 times in the Bible it says fear not. That's one for every day. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever you're distressed about, God says for every day you're distressed, fear not, fear not, fear not. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Do not be dismayed. Fear not. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God. You stand and let me show you my salvation. You got any hang-ups? You got any discouragements? Is there anything in your life? Is there a great multitude coming against you? You see, you and I are not to go into battle as warriors. We are to go to, into battle as worshipers. We're just there to watch what God does. 
We are there to see His hand, and too often we think the solution rests with us when we need to be like Moses, who said to the people at the Red Sea, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. I don't know what your problems are, but if my God can part the Red Sea, He can handle whatever it is you're worried about. I don't know what it is. It's big to you. It's just like somebody said one time. If it's you, it's, it's minor surgery. If it's me, it's major surgery. You know, it may seem small to me. It may be enormous to you. But whatever it is, no matter how big the problem, I can tell you this. If you'll stand still, you'll see the salvation of the Lord. Get your eyes on God. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. For the battle is not yours. Some of you are in running battles in your families. You got, a, you got conflict in your family and in your home. There's antagonism between husband and wife. There's a battle going on. You got a child that's just driving you nuts and y'all are at each other's throats and all kind of pressure is going on. Listen, listen. Stand still. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord. You let God, you put God on the throne and then watch him bring about his salvation in that situation. Quit running around, reading a horoscope, trying to find out everybody's opinion on the face of the earth and find out how God tells you to deal with it. He's going to tell you in His Word. He's going to tell you to stand still. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't get uptight. Don't get all stretched out. God's going to take care of it. Fear not. The battle's not yours. The Lord is with you. But you don't know where I'm going, but the Lord is with you. But you don't know how tough it is, but the Lord is with you. He's with you. Walk with Him. Listen to Him. God delivers us from our distress. When you pray, understand you're just not getting stuff off your shoulders. You're rolling it over to the Lord who is with you and who will give you all things that you need in Christ. Number five, God acts when we worship. Look at verse 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, And the Levites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Verse 20, the last part, Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. That little phrase in verse 20, Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established, literally means affirm the Lord, and you'll be confirmed. Affirm the Lord and you'll be confirmed. It's like this. You stand firm in the Lord, and the Lord will see to it that you're able to stand firm. Ephesians 6 tells you to put on all this spiritual armor. Why? So we can run out into battle? No. He says, so that you might be able to stand. That's all. Just stand. Listen, folks, people around us are dropping like flies. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They don't know what to do with their lives. They don't know where to go. And if the church would just learn to stand in the all-sufficiency of Christ, the world would want to know the message just because they're falling all over themselves. Stand. Jehoshaphat bowed down, put his face to the ground. The people bowed down, and the Levites stood up and began to sing praises to God. Look at verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people... 
He appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, you know there had to be a skeptic somewhere in the crowd. Give thanks for what? And I just watched the news. There are three great armies coming against us. Give thanks for what? Give thanks for the fact that His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, Jehoshaphat really messed up the system when he gave the next order. For he sent the singers out first. I want you to get the picture. Jehoshaphat got the orchestra and the choir, and they went to their D-Day, their Normandy beach, and they said, okay, first people out of the boats are the trumpet players and the harpists the flautist, all the people with musical instruments, and the singer is going to bring them up from behind, and we're going to hit the beaches singing. What, 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 but, but they've got swords and arrows and chariots. That's okay. We've got trumpets and harps and singers. And so I want you to get the picture. The Marine Corps band and chorus hit the beach. And the troops got to sit on the boat and watch everybody fall by the wayside. That's what happens when God takes over. You see, they worship Him. They sang songs to Him. They came and they sang. They praised God. Not because the victory had already been won. They praised God because there was going to be a victory. Listen, folks, it's easy. It is so easy to praise God when all the facts are in. I mean, it's easy to praise God when you can tally up all the numbers and say, boy, we made it. It's easy to praise God when the doctor's report is good after you hear it. What this passage says is when you worship God, worship Him and thank Him that His promises are true and that whatever happens, you are praising Him in advance that He is victorious in your life. You praise God and then wait to see what happens. You don't wait to see what happens and then start praising God. You don't sing the doxology and victory in Jesus after the victory. You sing it before the victory. Not when all the facts are in, before you know all the facts. Ron Dunn said that only desperate men and women propelled by a sense of urgency truly intercede. Those who are at ease in Zion will never man the ramparts of intercession to repel the enemy. Battles are never won by the nonchalant. Could I tell you something about this battle? Look at verse 22. <clears throat> and when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes. And then the last part of that verse, so they were routed. They began singing and praising, give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is good. Give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is good. Give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is good. And when God heard that in heaven, He sent angels and sent ambushes and they were routed and they were dead as corpse. Why? No shots were fired. No arrow was shot through the air. There was no military attack. 
I tell you, God inhabits the praises of His people and He longs for His people to praise Him and to know how to worship Him so that when they worship Him, the enemy is set to flight. Let me tell you something, folks. The devil can't hang around where there's praise going on. It drives him nuts. You want to know how to get the devil out of a church? You get that church to learn how to sing and he'll have to leave. Churches that don't know how to sing, the enemy loves to be in them. You want to know how to get the devil off your back? You learn how to sing praises to God. By the way, God sees you as the choir. These people up here just help us. But you see, you're the choir. And if you're going to walk out of here in victory, you're going to have to learn how to sing. You're going to have to learn how to praise God. You're going to have to learn how to worship because you see, when God sets things in motion through prayer, the singers always go out before the soldiers. And when the singers get through, the soldiers don't have to worry about it. You need to be a singer. You need to sing praises to God. Why? Because God loves that. Verse 24, look at it. And when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. You think that was a reminder of verse 15? The battle is not yours, but God's. No one had escaped. Look at verse 25. You want to see the results of it? When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Prayer and praise determined the outcome of the battle. By the way, not one man in Judah died that day. Jehoshaphat's army, historians estimate that Jehoshaphat's army had a 1.6 million men available. They had three armies coming against them. Nobody died that day because the singers sang their song. Nobody was wounded that day because the worshipers praised the name of God. God enjoys it when we worship. God inhabits the praises of His people. God turns distress and fear into praise for His provision. There is great joy and great blessings and great praise that comes when God's people learn how to get a hold of God and worship Him. That's one of the reasons why I love Sunday nights around here. We're not so pressed for time. We're not worried about beating the Methodists and the Presbyterians anywhere. And we just kind of relax and we settle down a little bit. And you can almost see it settle in. It's almost like a cloud, except it's really like the breaking forth of a day. After we've been singing a while, everybody kind of relaxes. You start seeing people and they'll close their eyes and they'll just begin to sing. And they quit worrying about if they've getting all the words right on that worship folder and they just start singing their praises to God and worshiping God with their voice and they begin to prepare their hearts to hear something for God and God moves in and takes over. I tell you folks, if it's never happened to you, it's because you've not learned how to rejoice and praise God in your heart and let Him lift the burdens and the cares off your life. Let me give you three quick principles. Number one, God will reward 
the look of faith. God will reward the look of faith. Can you imagine? Three days they picked up the spoils of this battle. And they didn't even do anything. This was like the ultimate garage sale with no price tags attached. Just go and get whatever you want, get all you want, and for three days, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you know what it's called? Look at what it's called, verse 26. From that day on, they called the valley, the valley of, it translates, blessing or praise. Where the battle was won. It wasn't the valley of the battle. It was the valley of blessing or praise. God will reward the look of faith. They looked to God. They looked to Him for help, and God took care of their enemy. God will release power when we pray. God will release power when we pray. And then finally, God will respond when we learn to praise. What do you pray when you don't know what to do? There's some of you here this morning and, and you're a single parent and you don't know how you're going to make it. You don't know how you're going to make it financially. You don't know how you're going to make it. The fact that your kids don't have a mom and dad in the same home, you don't know what you're going to do. There's some of you here this morning and you're widowed or you're a widower. You've lost your spouse and you don't know what you're going to do. What you need to do is pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm powerless and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on Thee. Some of you are here this morning in such financial bondage, you couldn't do anything for God with your money if you had to because you're literally in bondage financially. Lord, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on You. Somebody here has got a prodigal son out there away from God or a daughter that's turned their back on the church, you raise them to do different, you raise them to be different, but they've just totally walked away from the church. Lord, we are powerless to change our children. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Some of you this morning, thinking about a promotion or a move that your company's offered you. Lord, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. Some of you have gotten a bad health report. Maybe things don't look good. Maybe you're not feeling right. Maybe you're deteriorating physically. Maybe you've got a spouse that's got Alzheimer's or a parent that's got Alzheimer's and, and you, quite frankly, do not know what you're going to do about that situation. Lord, I am powerless. I can't change this situation. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not too simplistic. It's just truth. When you don't know what to do, put your eyes on Jesus. Admit that you're powerless. Admit that you're helpless. Admit that you don't have any control over the circumstances. Admit that you can't talk change into coming about, that you can't convince change into happening, that you can't manipulate or motivate or pressure those things to happen. Lord, I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. And then stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.